good morning. It's good to see you all. Would you join me in opening up our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5? I have to say it's kind of nice on this holiday weekend uh, that we can take the opportunity to get away with doing just one gathering instead of two. And to see, it looks like we're just barely making that work uh, on this weekend. But I, I probably haven't said this for a couple of years, but on weekends like this, I, I can't help but think that you should just take a look around, take notice of who else is here, and just nod in solidarity that they too were not invited anywhere this weekend. <laughs> Praise God, we're here, ready to worship. Although now, now that we are live streaming, we might have some Grace Church people traveling, watching. So happy for you. So, <laughs> so happy for you. But we also have all our children, kindergarten and fifth grade, who normally do go downstairs. They're all with us in the service today. And so we're glad to have you kids here with us. Uh, and we ask uh, just everyone just be gracious with the parents who might have a child who might be a little more wiggly, chatty, shifty this morning. Uh, and just uh, let's extend each other that grace this morning. But we're going to jump right into our passage um, in Galatians. And up to this point in the letter uh, that Paul has written to a church in the city of Galatia, he has written extensively, you could say repeatedly, uh, what it means to be a true child of God. We've seen that maybe every week since January. Those who have heard the gospel, those who have believed in Jesus Christ, those who have been restored by faith, and now there's a little bit of a shift that began in the last couple of weeks as he heads towards the end of the letter. Paul has shifted gears a little bit to show how a restored life bears witness to this restored faith. He's essentially saying at this point, hey, church, being a Christian, it should be noticeable. Saving faith is not just an intellectual exercise where you kind of know the right questions, you know the right answers to the right questions. Um, being a Christian changes things. It changes you. It transforms and rightly orders your affections, your outlook on the world, your, your desires, your, your purposes. He's saying, church, you have a new master now. You're walking on a new path now. And you are still you but you're a restored you that now lives a different way. All right, sorry, I'm getting a little worked up ahead of time. Galatians 5, we're at one service this morning. I got all my energy in one service this morning, so prepare yourself. We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 21 this morning, and then I'll share why we're stopping there today. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Throughout this letter, um, Paul often contrasts two lines of thought, um, law and grace, works and flesh, or works and faith, excuse me, sons and slaves. And now he does it again, and this time it's the contrast of the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit that true believers experience. And this passage, if you've been around churches for a while, maybe grew up in church, it's a relatively well-known passage because it, because it has these lists in it, right? These long lists. And first, what we just read, it's the list of the bad things. And followed by, which we'll get to next week, a, a list of good things known as the fruit of the Spirit. And so you got this contrast literally back-to-back in the passage. These bad things to avoid, these good things to do. And oftentimes it is approached, unfortunately, I think it's often taught in such a way that gets very hyper-individualistic. And you have a mentality where you naturally will start to comb through this list and you'll grade yourself. The do's and the don'ts. And maybe you have a kind of a reaffirmed conviction to do the do's and to stay away from the don'ts. And then you hope by the end of your life that the good will outweigh the bad and it'll work out for you in the end. I am very confident that that is not what Paul wants you to do. That's not what Paul wants us to do as a church because that approach, it runs contrary to the rest of the letter that we've seen over the last several months. Again, he has said on repeat up to this point that we are not saved by our level of obedience. It's not how God's going to sort this out in the end. Rather, I think he is making the point that the kind of lives you lead will reveal who you follow. Let me say that again. The kind of lives you lead will reveal who you follow most. It exposes what is true inside. And I've grown increasingly in the conviction that the maybe chief reason why Paul gives these lists is the fact that the church of Jesus Christ has always shined brightest when it walks in step with the Spirit of God and not in step with the Spirit of the age. Jesus taught that that the church is called to be salt and light. It's these two word pictures he gives. The church is to be salt and light in the world, representing the kingdom of God as embassies in a foreign land. And so Paul wrote this letter to a church in Galatia, not just because he was concerned for them in the church, but I think he also wrote it because he was concerned for Galatia. The reason he planted a church there was because Galatia needed churches. They needed these outposts of the kingdom of God that would shine bright, that would reflect the glory of God, and ultimately that by God's grace would draw a city in darkness to the light. I say as often as I can from the pulpit that Grace Church, we were never called to defeat the world we're in. God has never called us to that. Nor has the Lord ever called us to walk in step with the world we're in. Rather, the church was founded to be distinct so that we can reach the world we're in to shine a light into the darkness. 
And after the last few weeks, from what happened in Buffalo, to California, to Texas domestically, and I want to be mindful of who we have in the room this morning. We know this. We know that to conflicts in Ukraine, to brutal civil wars happening in Yemen and Ethiopia internationally, we find ourselves in a globally cultural moment where, as it says in Exodus, there is a world shrouded in darkness. Exodus says, a darkness to be felt. That phrase haunts me. Because I don't even know what it means, but I kind of know what it means. You know what I mean? A darkness you can feel. And I know myself can be prone to do two things in a moment like this. I think Christians can be prone to do two things in cultural moments like this, and I've seen plenty of both this past week. One is to sit back and rail against how awful the world is and emotionally kind of check out. Let's not do that. Or we can lament real brokenness in this world, not hide from it emotionally, not remove ourselves from it and just try to distract ourselves from it, but bring that lament and all of its emotions and all of its questions. Anybody else have some questions this week? Bring all of those questions to the Lord and then see the opportunity to be part of a church that will shine bright in the midst of darkness. That God may use it to draw many to himself. It's for that reason, among others, that I think Paul says at this point in the letter, walk in step with the spirit of the living God. For you, Galatia, the church in Galatia, but also for the city. So here's how we're going to break down the passage over the next two weeks. This morning, we're going to look at the conflict between the flesh and the spirit, and then the threat of the flesh, followed by the victory of the spirit. Then next week, we're going to pick up where we left off and go through the following verses that show us the fruit of the spirit. So it's a little bit of a part one, part two, but starting this morning with number one, the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. And so at this point, I want to step back and answer a couple questions. What is the flesh? And what is the spirit? In this context, the flesh is not simply the body, as if the spiritual soul is good in you, but the physical body is bad. That's um, what they call Gnostic teaching. No good. All right? No good. But rather, in this context, the desires of the flesh, is the phrase Paul will use often, is any human thought, desire, or action that is done without dependence upon the Holy Spirit and without the aim to glorify God. Let me say that one more time. The desires of the flesh is any human thought, desire, or action that is done without dependence upon the Holy Spirit and without the aim to glorify God. Again, it's a common phrase of Paul. It's a summary phrase to really say what is foundationally wrong with the human condition that we are born with a, what is called, sin nature, a fleshly nature, where we naturally turn from God to serve what we want. That's the flesh. The Spirit, in this passage, is the Holy Spirit. 
the divine third person of the triune God, the Holy Spirit who indwells believers and the church, the Bible says, in order to render the presence of God and his people. The Holy Spirit indwells believers in order to render the presence of God in you. And so for those who have the Spirit of God by faith in Jesus Christ, we are given a new nature where we now are empowered to turn to God from our fleshly cravings and desires. It reverses, it restores the curse in us. And author David Pallison says, quote, The most significant inner conflict in Christians is between what the Spirit wants and what we want. The most significant conflict that we face every single day is this, uh, these two things in opposition to one another. Meaning there is a constant and present conflict between the flesh and the Spirit in you. Paul writes in verse 17, they are opposed to each other. Paul is saying at this point, guys, the Christian life, it's a war. Not against a world out there. But between the Spirit of God and the desires of the flesh, first and foremost, in me. In you. In another letter Paul wrote, he wrote to a church in the city of Rome, and he provided a glimpse of what this looks like in his life. Listen to this. Tell me if you can relate. He writes, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, he writes, who will deliver me from this body of death? Can you relate? Do you recognize this? Do you see the war that is in play within you? Are you aware of what is happening on the battlefield of your own mind and heart each and every day? The, the, the flesh and the spirit cannot peacefully coexist. There is no compromising. There's no cutting deals between the two and making it work. The Galatians, we've seen throughout this letter, they wanted to compromise. They wanted to take truth and mix it in with just a little bit of false teaching. Just a little bit of heresy. Just a little bit of sin. We can handle it. It won't get out of control. I know it's not the way it should be, but we cut a deal with the flesh and the spirit. Paul says, there's no cutting deals. The flesh will never be content with the deal until it consumes all of you. It's like poison, poisonous ivy on a house. It will spread until something happens to ensure that it stops. It will not stop on its own. So Paul is saying to the church, there are two truths we need to acknowledge every single day of our lives. I don't think this is an overstatement. Two truths we need to um, acknowledge every single day if we're going to walk in the freedom of the gospel, if we're going to live a purpose-filled, God-glorifying, kingdom-impacting life. Two truths. Number one, the threat of the flesh. And number two, the victory of the Spirit. Take those now one at a time. The threat of the flesh. Here's where we, here we get to the list. Verses 19 to 21. There's 15 words there. 
15 works of the flesh that he says are evident. They are evident, meaning they are pretty clearly seen to anyone looking on. And these works of the flesh are a reflection of a fallen world, meaning if the church follows the spirit of the age, it will look like the spirit of the age and not God. Because over time, this is true for me, it's true for you, over time you will look like who you follow closest. Social media gives us a little window into this. All right, so you got platforms out there like Instagram and TikTok that literally calls you a follower. You are a follower. Do you know that on those platforms? You have a profile. You have followers, people who chose to follow you. If you gave me a list of who you followed closest on these platforms, there was just a list printed out and provided. These are the accounts that they follow closest day to day. I could probably get a pretty good handle on what is most important to you. I'm on Instagram. I still don't know what TikTok is, all right? I'm I'm officially at that age of my life, all right? If I printed out for you the accounts on Instagram I follow closest each day, you could probably get a pretty good handle on what's most important to me. We become who we follow. If you're not on social media, you could go other routes. You can go the books you read, the music you listen to, the news you consume, the people you spend time most with. We all become who we follow most. And those who follow the spirit of the age will reflect the works of the flesh, which Paul says over time it will be evident to anyone paying close enough attention. Now, I don't think these 15 words are an exhaustive list. I don't think you should print them out and put them on your fridge as the things to avoid in life, and then you'll be good. Because he finishes the list with the phrase, quote, and things like these, etc. So I don't think it's even helpful for us to go now word for word and hyperanalyze each one. I think he's making the bigger point that there are certain habitual behaviors and works that are incongruent with the Spirit of God. This is important. Please listen to this part. Paul, I think, is talking here about the habit of sin, not an act of sin. And I say that because a passage like this, it could really mess someone up. Maybe it's messed you up in the past. Maybe it's messing you up now. Well, you look at that list, 15 words, and you see a word on that list, and you know you struggle with a word on that list. Maybe other people don't know because they haven't been looking closely enough. But you struggle against one of these works of the flesh, and because that struggle exists, now you are found in a, kind of a, a whirlpool of your own shame and guilt, questioning your own salvation. After all, he says right after it, I warn you that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what do we do with that? That's as clear and stark of a warning you're going to find anywhere in your Bible. And while I don't think Paul is trying to make true believers doubt themselves, again, he is conveying the truth that the Spirit of God cannot truly enter into someone who remains dominated by desires that are contrary to God without any struggle, without any violation of conscience. 
The, the literal translation is helpful here. That doesn't come across as much in English. The literal translation of the word do in the phrase that those who do such things is those who make a practice of doing. Those who make a practice of doing. That, that Christians cannot neglect the threat of the works of the flesh. We cannot neglect the fact that the enemy wants to destroy you every single day. He wakes up every day figuring out how he can destroy you and get you into the drift. You know what I'm talking about, the drift. Giving into the flesh just a little bit, and all along the way we can justify the benchmarks. There was an old English Puritan, his name was John Sheffield. He wrote in a 1659 sermon to his church. This quote will be on the screen, the steps of how a small sin becomes an addiction. He wrote this, 1659, said this, at first, it is only a possibility, then more probable, but still a heavy task. Next, it is easy, and then light and sweet, and at last, necessary. He who makes a small matter of small sins is in danger of falling into the greater. And so we cannot hide from this warning but we also want to have some nuance and say that the Bible says Christians will never be sinless in this world. You will have certain seasons where uh, there will be intense battles and real struggles with the flesh, something on that list, something off the list, where you know that you're up against it and you feel that war. But it also says that over time, by God's grace and the Spirit's power, Christian maturity will increasingly subdue the flesh. So these works of the flesh may happen, but they ought not be habitual or done without any pricking of our conscience. And as I said, we're not going to go through them word by word, but let me break them into three brief categories. I got this from John Stott. He said the first category is sexual the first three in his list and the last are sexual sins. The first being a general word that covers all sexual sin, and then he gets more specific. Interestingly enough, when Jesus shared a similar list in Mark chapter 7, he also began with sexual sins. It intimates a lack of restraint in every way. An abuse of God's good gift of sex, a good gift of sex and sexuality, justified by the mentality that if it feels good, it must be right, paving the way. Sexual sin always has been and always will be a major issue in a fallen world because it displays an utter self-centeredness at its core, a self-centeredness that dishonors others made in the image of God for the purpose of pleasure and defies God's right plan for sex in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. And let me just say, none of us have a clean rap sheet when it comes to sexual sin. Zero of us. The second one is a religious category. He uses words here like idolatry and sorcery. This would be the religion in the negative sense of the word, where false gods reign supreme, where people worship false gods in order to gain something from them. 
That I, I don't love God for God. I love God for the purpose of getting something from him. That's, a, that's, a, that's religion in the negative sense of the word. There's two major ways in the Bible where religion can go badly. It's one, professing false gods. Or, I think the more dangerous kind, the Pharisee kind, using the real God as a cover-up for self-glory and personal gain. Third category is what Stott called the social list. The relational sins. This is the longest list in this list in chapter 5. Relational sins where we sin against one another due to self-pride or seeing ourselves more highly than we ought to or not seeing others as image bearers as they are. The kind of indulgent sins where we choose to follow our own heart and never check those desires. This whole list, Paul says, when, when these things dominate our hearts and lives, it will hinder the work of the Spirit in us and it will negatively impact our witness in trying to reach a darkened world. You cannot reach a world that you look exactly like. And, and while Paul, throughout this whole letter, he's been passionately defending right doctrine. Have you noticed that in Galatians? Big theme, getting the gospel right. The true gospel, there's no other gospel. I think he's now saying, and we ought to pay attention to this, be careful, church, from disconnecting right doctrine from behavior. Be careful of detaching head knowledge and having the right answers from true heart affections and then behavioral actions. Can we be honest? People who love doctrine and theology tend to love Paul, tend to love a book like Galatians. And at Grace Church, we hope you love theology. We hope you love doctrine. But not for the sake of an argument that can be used to exercise power over others. I hope you love doctrine because you know that gospel truth is the kindling of the flames of affection in your heart for him. To love him for him and not for self-gain. Uh, Rochelle and I had the opportunity to go to Charleston for a few days uh, a couple weeks ago, and we visited Magnolia Plantation just outside the city. And we did a house tour, amongst some other things, on the plantation that contained a lot of the original furniture from the 19th century. The owner of the plantation from 1825 to 1870 was a man named Thomas Drayton, Thomas was also a pastor of a nearby Anglican church called St. Andrew's, which is still there a couple miles down from the plantation. And in the house was Thomas's desk where he studied and prepared sermons, where his Bible was open on the desk for the house tour, where he prepared sermons, met with congregants from the church. And I couldn't help on one hand be like, man, that's pretty cool. Like, like, maybe he prepared sermons out of Galatians, just pen in hand, writing him out, looking to bless his church. But I quickly could not help but be sobered by the fact that Thomas Drayton sat at that desk, prepared a sermon to preach out of Galatians chapter 5, would preach about that one true gospel, would feel affirmation from others saying, Pastor, that was a great sermon. 
and then go down the road to his house and then give instructions for the 150 slaves that he owned as property that week. What a disconnect. And even worse, to justify owning fellow humans as necessary for the sake of the mission. The mission of God, when it really was just about power. Lest we think this is only something rooted in history, let me give you one more sober example that's way more current. You might know that last Sunday, one week ago today, the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, the Southern Baptist Convention, released a 300-page report from an independent investigation that revealed rampant sexual abuse amongst pastors and denominational leaders within the SBC over several decades, and then the concerted effort to cover up that abuse and gaslight the abuse survivors. Many, if not most, of those pastors and leaders in the denomination that I know I have been heavily shaped by preach Galatians verse by verse in their churches. And they were proud of that. We go verse by verse in this church. Great sermons. Pure gospel is proclaimed. And then they'd go into meetings during the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and determine how are we going to silence these women and protect the abusers. Grievous, covering grievous sexual sin. Again, why? In the name of the mission. God has called us to a great mission, and we can't let this distract. It's not about the mission. It's about power. In her book, Redeeming Power, that came out last year, Diane Langberg writes prophetically, and the quote will be on the screen, Systemic abuse become, became clear to me as I discovered that sometimes the people of God unite to protect God's name by both committing and concealing actions that look nothing like God. Much of Christendom today seems less interested in seeing as Jesus saw and far more interested in gaining power. Our responses to the vulnerable expose who we are. Professing Christians who practice these works of the flesh. We don't know their heart, but the actions at some point will speak for themselves. And you ought to be warned to repent, to return to God, not only for your sake, but for the sake of the church, for the cities God's called us to reach. Well, in the midst of that despair and warning, I hope now you, like me, are thirsting to know how can we stay on the path? How can we shine bright as the church? That leads to the second thing we need to acknowledge each and every day, the victory of the Spirit. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Life in the Spirit, not just head knowledge, the experiential day-by-day -day life with the Spirit brings about a whole new way of life. Again, you're still you, but you're a repurposed you, a restored you, and now you live life a different way in every aspect of our lives. Not perfectly, but progressively. And this is why Paul says that without the Spirit, no one will inherit the kingdom of God. 
Uh, there, there's a little book called Delighting in the Trinity. I recommend it as often as I can by author Michael Reeves. And he writes in this great little book that because of our sin nature, we all come into the world as spiritual stillborns, naturally loving and desiring things over and above God. And since the problem is not primarily with just behavior, but it's with our hearts, the solution cannot just be behavior modification, but we need a new heart. Think about this illustration with an actual heart. Some of the most common signs of an unhealthy heart are as follows. I googled it. Perpetual shortness of breath left shoulder pain, heartburn or stomach pain, swollen feet. Signs of a bad heart. Hope that did not freak any of you out, all right? (laughs) See a doctor this week. But if you had all these symptoms, the solution would not be topical cream to fix the left shoulder, some Tums for the heartburn, an ice bath for your swollen feet, No, the doctor would say, you need a new heart. If you get a new heart, a strong heart, then those symptoms will be resolved. So, too, our problem is not that we have unhealthy desires. Those are just symptoms. Our problem is a bad spiritual heart. And we cannot perform our our way out of a bad heart. So we must be, as Paul wrote earlier in chapter 2, verse 20, crucified with Christ. Reeves writes in that same book, Delighting in the Trinity, that this is the work of the Spirit. He opens our eyes and regenerates our hearts in justification. And we believe in faith and we are raised with Christ. Then he says, the Spirit then beautifies our hearts. Love that phrase. He regenerates your heart in salvation, justification, and then he beautifies your heart over time in the work of sanctification. That's what Paul means when he says, when you are led by the Spirit, you are no longer under the law. You are no longer under just a set of rules to follow. Hear me, we're going to finish up here in a few minutes. If your response to this passage in this sermon is, okay, I can't do the bad things, I need to do the good things. And try to motivate yourself to just do better. Just be better when you walk outside this door. Brother or sister, you're missing it. Paul is saying that because of the Spirit, you are under grace now. You're unconditionally loved now. God is your Abba, Father. And life in the Spirit brings about a whole new way of life. Church, he says you're free to love him. Do you know that? You're free to love him. You're free to enjoy him. You're free to live for him because even when you do struggle mightily against the flesh and you lament over the sin in your life, he is glad to draw from the riches of his saving grace. He is glad to restore you again and again and again. And in this new way of living, you are still you, but a restored you. And Paul says, and it's noticeable. It changes you. It's the victory of the Spirit. You have new desires now, new power now, new freedom now from the weight of sin. And yes, it happens over time. And yes, it generally happens slower than we would often like, but we do change. And I do think that by and large, Christians underutilize the power and the presence of the Spirit in their lives. I think we at times only think about Spirit-filled life in regards to super miraculous things, crazy things. But the Spirit-led life is a repurposing of the very ordinary day-to-day life you are living for His glory. 
And I want to shake this into us. That living a Christian life without walking in step with the Spirit would be like living homeless on the side of the road when you have $10 million in the bank. And next week, we will carry this point further as we dig into the point of the Spirit. But as we close this morning, let me again emphasize my increasing conviction that Paul wrote this not just for the church, but for the city. That the church will only shine bright in the world if we follow him and not the world. If we're led by the Spirit. I'm going to finish by sharing a conversation I had with somebody this past week uh, that I work out with. He, um, he's a police officer in a local town. I won't say the town, but it's very close and you all know it. He was sharing with me, without me even probing, that their police force is talking all the time about how at a loss they are of the crisis they're seeing in their town. He said, the amount of domestic disputes, domestic abuse, drug addiction, alcohol-related offenses and addictions, divorces and suicide ideation is overwhelming them. He's been on the force for a number of years, but he says the people who've been there the longest are saying repeatedly, it has never been this bad. And this is suburban central, man. This is the good life. This is the comfortable life. This is the life everybody wants. And he's saying to me, look me in the eye, it's in a tailspin. And they are overwhelmed. And the challenges are immense. And so I have two thoughts to leave you with. First, let's lament the brokenness that is all around us. And it's not just out there. It's very close. Second, I feel my heart stirred for what a time to be the church. We know what people need. They need the Spirit of God. And so we commit by the power of that Spirit to live by that Spirit in our lives, in our church. And let's watch him work. Let's pray. Father, we, we are a mixture of emotions this morning in a lot of different ways. Lord, we read a passage like that and it's a mixture of emotions. The threat of the flesh is real, Father. Let us not forget we have an enemy who wants to destroy us. But in the same breath, Lord, let us not forget that we have a spirit who will keep us. Father, draw us near to yourself. Continue to work in us. Continue to work through us. Keep our eyes fixed on you. Keep our arms linked together in the church, Lord, that we do not run this race alone. And Father, let us not overlook what you have called Grace Church to. Father, we are not ourselves the answer for this world. But we have a king who is. And we can play a part. And so I pray with humble confidence we might live and walk by the Spirit day by day. And watch what you will do in our lives and in the lives of the world around us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.